people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities looking uncomfortably to the world we inherit. Those are the opening words of the Port Huron Statement, the coming-out document of the Students for a Democratic Society, which was composed of a number of college students and radicals who had decided that they needed to do something to reinvigorate the American left, which by the early 60s was essentially moribund. Now, the U.S. had had a vibrant and often violent and quite radical labor tradition leading all the way from the late 19th century to the, the 1930s, but it had essentially been neutralized by the early 60s by a carrot-and-stick approach, the carrot being the co-optation by the Democratic Party and Franklin Roosevelt, the creation of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and then after World War II, the labor peace that was essentially hashed out between the major unions and large American industries, specifically the auto industry, where the, the unions would be guaranteed a seat at the table and a, a, a significant share of the bounty of America's post-war economic boom, coupled with the absolute terrifying uh, stick of McCarthyism and government suppression. Um, after World War II, the combination of the Red Scare in Washington and the resultant terrified effort by labor leaders to root out any kind of communist influence meant that the vanguard of the American labor movement, the ones that had pushed forward and, and gained as, as the, the dramatic in, uh, uh, advances and victories that they had in the previous 20 years, were all purged as, in an effort to uh, conform to the post-war order in which communism had replaced the Axis powers as America's great enemy. And what that meant is that by the time the first group of Students for a Democratic Society met in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to propose uh, a, a new organization, there was no militant left in the United States. The people who had been in labor movements, the people who had filled the, the, radical, uh, the radical union halls and had the membership roles of radical political parties like the socialists and the communists, had essentially been bought off. They were captives to the same fantasy of eternal American prosperity as the rest of the country after World War II, when the fact that the U.S. was essentially the only major economic power left and the industrial heartland for all of the rebuilding uh, uh, nations, uh, it, it meant that, that that sense of militancy and edge that had predominated during the radical 30s, the years of the Depression, uh, was totally uh, disarmed. People felt like they were doing very, very well, at least, obviously, white people. And because of America's racial caste system, the more heavily felt uh, dis dissatisfaction and, and, and growing militancy uh, in America's black communities – what was not connected to any kind of greater greater movement. So with the American left as a labor movement essentially neutered, no longer in the streets, no longer agitating forward, comfortable to in, uh, embrace the sort of Eisenhower steady state of, of, of uh, fat union paychecks and, and guaranteed weekends and and, and, and quarter-acre lots in the suburbs, uh, there was no more energy for, for fomentation. So a bunch of young radicals met for the first meeting of the Students for a Democratic Society in 1962. Uh, now, actually, they were, they were the outgrowth of a bunch of organizations that had existed since the turn of the century, uh, but were looking towards universities as the new place to sort of build uh, an American left now that the white working class was essentially bought off by and scared off by capital. So at that first meeting, a bunch of radical students penned what became known to history as the Port Huron Statement. Tell me about yourself, Jeffrey. I was uh, one of the authors of the Port Huron Statement, uh, the original Port Huron Statement. Uh-huh. Uh, not the, the compromise second draft. 
Uh, and the Port Huron Statement is a document that is very much of its time. It is, for example, there's a line in it when they complain that most college students are uh, complacent and they're more interested in in the twist than in uh, engaging with politics. So, you know, and, and basically you can imagine that just like replace the twist with like selfies. And it's the same thing with people complaining about like their fellow lazy millennials or whatever. So the Port Huron statement is an outline of a bunch of middle class white kids basically who were uh, horrified by a, a, a nation that seemed incredibly self-satisfied but at the same time was was riven by real ills and and a horrifying racism and it seemed honestly to just be sort of sleepwalking into a nuclear apocalypse with its Cold War brinksmanship with the Soviet Union. So these kids essentially wanted to wake America up and recreate the sense of social urgency that had presided before World War II, before this complacency had set in that was the result of America's hegemonic economic position in the post-war world. They complained about nuclear uh, nuclear uh, war. They complained about Jim, Jim Crow. They complained about an American – Population that was no longer engaged politically, didn't really think that there could be horizons, didn't think in any kind of utopian or even idealistic sense, only felt apathy and sort of an understanding that their, the, the world they had inherited was the only world they could have and that there was no changing anything. And they proposed a program of re-emerging re, re uh, democracy, essentially, the idea of every person in America feeling a common purpose and a desire to engage each other on a democratic, horizontal, um, political footing. And the document, as a result, feels very much like everything you could find out about the new left and the way that it sort of ended up re turning into this sort of weird quasi-libertarianism – it's in the document. It's in the Port Huron Statement. There's very much an emphasis on people's personal moral duty to the country and to each other and the need to basically reinvigorate a sense of civic responsibility more than anything among the population. Not a lot of talk of class. Uh, they, are, they don't want to be militantly anti-communist the way that uh, the rest of the American left at that point was very much neurotically so uh, – but they also didn't want to adhere to any of the quote-unquote tired uh, slogans of the old left about, about cat class war. There's very little talk of class in the document. Uh, and it basically just says America's fucked up, racist as hell, militaristic, uh, capitalist to the point that it is destroying communities and sense of fellow feeling. Uh, and we want to change that. And we feel like the place to do that is America's colleges. They lay, they lay out the sense that in in the university is where the future of the American left is, uh, and this is why they say that universities are the place to reinvigorate the American left and find the people who are going to change the country. First, the university is located in a permanent position of social influence. Its educational function makes it indispensable and automatically makes it a crucial institution in the formation of social attitudes. Second. In an unbelievably complicated world, it is the central institution of, for organizing, evaluating, and transmitting knowledge. Third, the extent to which academic resources presently are used to buttress immoral social practice is revealed first by the extent to which defense contracts make the universities engineers of the arms race. Two, the use of modern social science as a manipulative tool reveals itself in the human relations consultants to the modern corporations who introduce trivial sops to give laborers feelings of participation and belonging while actually diluting them in order to further exploit their labor. So basically they feel like the universities are the place where America's cultural mindset is fashioned. And in that they certainly weren't all wrong. But it made them decide that the place to find the left in the, in the post-New World order of the 60s was going to be the universities. The last line 
uh, of the Port Huron statement is the last two lines are as students for a democratic society, we are committed to stimulating a kind of social movement, a kind of vision and program in campus and community across the country. If we appear to seek the unattainable, as it has been said, then let it be known that we do so to avoid the unimaginable. So that is the creed de cour of this young generation, small group of very earnest young idealists who want to change American society. And their first few years uh, were filled with attempts to do so. Um, there were attempts to reach out to racial justice organizations like SNCC and, uh, and CORE. There were a, a attempts to organize with anti-war and, and, and denuclearization activists. Uh, and there was even an attempt, a, a botched attempt, to reach out to the white working class, uh, uh, basically sort of a, a sort of a neurotic mission to to the urban white proletariat and try to engage them in political activism, which didn't really work out. Uh, and then in the, in the, by 1965, the free speech movement, which was happening in, in Berkeley, uh, wh where students protested the removal of core uh, pamphleteering stations in, in one of their outdoor public areas, and led to a huge showdown with uh, Berkeley police and the birth of this concept of radical free speech on campus, which, of course, Milo uh, Yabadabadopoulos would say, oh, quite ironic. Uh, triggered much? Oh, jolly good show. Oh, Bob's your uncle. But during all of this, the organization is still relatively small, confined to a, 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 a fraction of American colleges. And then SDS really took into came into its own with protests against the Vietnam War. That was really the the absolute catalyst for the vast majority of uh, '60s activism and the groups that came out of that. Uh, without Vietnam, it's it, it's an entirely different country, and obviously in many ways. But but uh, the way that the, the the '60s protest movement and radical organizations were shaped was hugely, hugely dependent upon Vietnam and what happened there. So throughout the early six, for the mid sixties, SDS became the point people on a given college campus involved in any kind of anti-war protest. Uh, in 1965, there was a massive war demonstration in DC uh, and the, the president of SDS at the time gave a great speech that was massively well respected and that raised the profile of Students for Democratic Society. So the the late 60s, the mid to late 60s for SDS is, a, is basically this process by which the ferment of, of dissatisfaction and anger about the Vietnam War among college students contributed to this huge energy behind the sales of SDS, which made it grow larger, grow more chapters, get a higher profile in public, become more prominent in, in anti-war activism. But at the same time, that also increased the number of different types of people with the different number of conflicting agendas who began trying to join and ideally direct the movement of SDS. Uh, and so those two things sort of fed each other throughout that whole period. So 1968 is obviously a huge year as it was sort of the pivotal year of the 1960s and it saw massive uh, revolt, urban violence, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the race riots throughout almost all uh, northern American uh, urban areas and the demonstrations in Chicago, the police riot uh, the, the, against protesters who didn't want to see – uh, Herb, Hubert Humphrey sees the Democratic nomination. So that also affected the SDS because it contributed to a sense of urgency and a, and a sense of frustration with how, with how nonviolent methods learned from the civil rights movement had failed to have an effect, the sort of equal effect on the war effort that it had on civil rights law. Uh, that led to a greater sense of urgency and anger and, and more pressure within SDS, which led towards, over the next couple of years, a split. And in 1969, 
SDS was essentially put into a prolonged crisis between two two sides, and they had a bunch of petty arguments about which um, which party, which is enter SDS, need to be barred from SDS, and which ones needed to be let in. All very petty, but all just proxies for the main conflict between an old guard who's who still saw their role as being part of a nonviolent consciousness raising and solidarity producing mechanism, which was the 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 protest movement and an emerging block of more radical, more ideological and angrier people who felt like uh, nonviolence has sort of reached the limits of its effectiveness and something else had to be had to be mooted, had to be thought of. And so that split carried itself out through 1969. And what emerged out of it uh, at the at the uh, annual convention was a final conflict which saw SDS essentially split into two sections, like the fucking uh, Armageddon asteroid getting blown up by Bruce Willis and flying off into two hunks into the stratosphere. Uh, and the names or whatever don't really matter. But all that really matters is that one group, one rump group of, of I guess you'd call them bourgeois pig sellouts or reformists or something, Kautskyites, continued the organization as a as a protest group, as uh, as an attempt to create uh, educational outreach and to create connections between different organizations, so a civic society protest movement, which existed into the 80s, uh, quietly to, uh, to not a lot of public fuss. Um, the other group, which, which called itself the main office, which basically claimed to be the actual real SDS as opposed to those fucking splitters, um, was eventually taken over by this group of ultra-radicals who decided that American fascism was too advanced, was too bloodthirsty, was too depraved to be dealt with by nonviolent resistance. It had to be met with force, force that would move America towards a point of radical class and race consciousness that would then create a civil war and the overthrow of the old order. That was the only thing that was going to do. That was the only thing that was going to stop the blood streaked machinery of empire was going to be a violent intercession. So there was a publication, a special publication of one of the SDS uh, magazines was brought out during the 1969 convention. And it was called, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which was by this group of radicals in SDS who wanted to become violent. And, it was a reference to the Bob Dylan song "Subterranean Homesick Blues," which has the line, "You don't know the weatherman. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows," which is hilarious on a number of levels because what was being created here was this group of radicals who felt that they were going to be the vanguard, the people who led the American and world proletariat to, to ultimate victory. But the weatherman in that song lyric is superfluous. You don't need him. And yet they called themselves that thing. And if they were if they were French, maybe I would buy that that was intentional irony. But these were really earnest nerds. So I kind of think they didn't realize what they were doing with that little goof. So anyway, 1969 was coming to an end with the creation of this radical group of young, white, pissed off, middle class kids who wanted to end America's empire, end racism, and to a, 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 an emerging extent within the group, end, end sexism. And, and, and they honestly felt that it was their duty as, as these people in the, in the global cockpit of empire to do as much as all of the world Asian movements that they admired, like in Cuba and Vietnam had done and China. If they could do it, my God, then you should do it here too. It's certainly our responsibility to do it here too. So – the first real show of strength after the SDS split in summer of 1969 was in October when the weather, the, the, the newly dubbed sort of weather underground staged a demonstration in Chicago, which had been the scene a year previously of the mayhem surrounding the Democratic National Convention. So – the difference was is that this was not going to be your grandpa's fucking protest. This was going to be the weathermen 
announcing to the world, to the proletariat, to the global anti-imperial forces, and to Uncle Charlie himself, that we were here and we were going to be playing for keeps now. Uh, it wasn't going to be going around in a circle on a predetermined path like in like in the marches on Washington or whatever. It was going to be anarchic, violent, and destructive, and it was going to cost things for the city. And it started with the bombing of the Haymarket cop statue uh, in uh, on October 6th, and then the real thing kicked off uh, the next day when – in something that became known as the Days of Days of Rage, uh, three hundred or so SDS people or weather people ran riot in downtown Chicago. Now, this was supposed to be the moment when uh, the weathermen showed their strength to the world, to America, as a force in the streets, as a group who could command physical space in an urban environment and make the forces that be deal with them. But instead of that happening. About 800 people showed up. And when they saw how serious the cops were, this is over a year after the DNC, these guys knew how to crack hippie heads, uh, fled. And so over the next three days of the, the Days of Rage, it was a small core of 300 hardcore motherfuckers who didn't run away and who threw shit at judges' houses and who broke windows all up and down the Miracle Mile of the shops and stuff in downtown Chicago, who who uh, fucking got into it and fucking threw hands with the cops, causing cop injuries and, and getting hurt themselves. And it was something that honestly showed their commitment. It didn't necessarily show their effectiveness, although – even if it hadn't been a huge success in terms of galvanizing others, it certainly did show that things were changing and that the cost was going to be higher of these protests, which to them was a victory. So inspired by what had happened, the leadership of the Weather Underground got together in Flint, Michigan uh, that December and had something that became known later as the Flint War Council, where this group of leaders has decided that – you know what? Maybe uh, that protest shit doesn't work. You know, we we did this thing in Chicago. It didn't really get us the result we wanted. We don't really have evidence to believe that if we call for an urban action, we're going to be supported by a critical mass of the population of that area, regardless of their physical condition or of, their, of, or of how alienated they are from empire. So maybe what we need to do is fall back and do something that is – even more violent and direct, but is doesn't require <laughs> control of physical space with large numbers of people the way that the protest strategy had meant. Essentially, they decided that they were going to go to war with the United States government. And one of the things that uh, really made them decide to do that definitively was the death of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was the incredibly charismatic, very young leader of the Black Panthers of Chicago, a guy who was able to articulate brilliantly the necessity for socialism, the necessity for multiracial solidarity in the face of capital, who saw through the mystifications of of um, of racism and, and, and classism and said, the way we're going to defeat this awful racial caste system is through multiracial democratic socialism that will destroy the need for this system of control. And he was largely opposed to violence. In fact, he condemned the days of rage as, uh, as unnecessarily provocative. But he was also an effective evangelist for a, a radical uh, a change in, in America's political and economic structure in a way that could appeal to people who were in a different race, the same way that Martin Luther King had appealed to people multiracially with his incipient idea for a poor people's march the year before, hashtag just saying. But the upshot of this is that the FBI essentially had Fred Hampton assassinated by the Chicago Police Department. He was in a home, he was in a, uh, an apartment with a number of other members of the Black Panther Party and friends and family. Uh, someone who was in the pay of the Chicago Police Department as an informant drugged his drink so that he was unconscious. And then Chicago Police destroyed the entire apartment with bullets indiscriminately 
killed another Black Panther named Mark Clark, and then, according to multiple witnesses, point blank executed Fred Hampton in his bed. And the Weather Underground took from this that, you know what? Uh, the only thing you motherfuckers understand is force. It's all we have, and it's all we can do to make you fucking pay attention. Because these attempts to actually create solidarity among Americans on a class level, it's too fucking dangerous. Uh, you're too quick to squash it. So now what ended up happening after the Flint War Council is that the leaders basically went underground. They were no longer publicly available. They started creating fake fake identities and fake uh, identification cards and were living in places without any kind of public knowledge of where they lived. And in so doing, began marshalling the forces for these small guerrilla bands, these essentially terrorist group hustles. And there were some, they were concentrated in the, the Midwest and then on each coast. And the big sort of coming out party for this new uh, insurgency was on February 21st, 1970, when... Molotov cocktails were thrown at the home of a Supreme New York State Supreme Court justice who was presiding over a court case involving uh, 21 uh, Black Panthers who were accused of terrorism or whatever. And they threw the Molotov cocktails into this motherfucker's house in New York City. And that really got the starter's pistol going. They were ready now to do spectacular public violence in an effort to rouse people's consciousness so that they would fight against this awful system. Um, to that end, the next big plan was to blow up a NCO dance at Fort Dix. They were going to smuggle a bomb into this army prom and blow it up as a way to signal to the country that that the, the war machine of America had to be stopped at any fucking cost. Uh, but the people who were trying to do this were building these this bomb in a townhouse in Greenwich Village when it blew up. And it was it destroyed this entire townhouse in Greenwich Village. It killed three uh, Weather Underground people. And this was a huge shock to everybody. And this is when they really made the decision to go totally underground, to no longer have a public face and to only do things from an insertion perspective and also to try to not kill people as much. Maybe there was some sort of, you know, karma there. But anyway, they started to to do very showy but non-lethal bombings in major areas across the country. So they put bombs – all over the place. They put bombs at the New York City Police Department. They put bombs at Army and Naval recruiting offices. Uh, most hilariously, they got paid by a bunch of uh, weird acid freaks to break Timothy Leary out of prison, which they did successfully. And this ended up sparking a huge explosion of American political violence in the 19, early 1970s. And it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to think about this because – we're we are in America totally fixated on fucking terrorism and, and and really neurotically obsessed with the idea of public acts of violence like that. Uh, but there's basically no terror attacks in the United States in a given year. You can round it down to zero, basically. In 18 months, from 1971 to 1972, there were over 2,500 bombings in the United States. I mean, most of them were they blew up a a trash can in a you know bank bathroom or something. I mean, the, the the most high profile bombing from this era that the weather people did was they blew up a woman's bathroom in the Pentagon. I mean, that's that's what most of them were. They were sort of small, almost ceremonial explosions in front of positions of power, but they killed very few people, and they were pretty small. People are usually notified ahead of time. But that's still a crazy number. I mean, think about how nuts everybody goes every time somebody finds a fucking pipe bomb in a mailbox or some fucking dipshit fail son has a botched attempt to, you know, derail a fucking Amtrak with his dick or something. 2,500 bombings in 18 months. I mean, regardless of their size, that's going to be fucking anxiety producing and weird to people. 
but it was nor it was that normal for that time. The most outlandish of these motherfuckers was probably uh, the Simeonese Liberation Army, which was a a white escape con and a bunch of uh, white nerds who kidnapped Patty Hearst and brainwashed her or didn't, depending on sources, and did a number of bank robberies and, and even killed somebody. Uh, those that all was sort of this part of this uh, milieu that was sparked by basically the frustration of seeing the '60s protest movement gutter into nothingness and seeing nothing change and things in fact even getting worse and feeling nothing but frustration and how that could be possible and wanting to just do anything that one could to make it do something to this edifice of monstrosity that that would make you feel like you were having an effect so it's it's understandable i mean when you think about how horrifying the Vietnam War is. I mean, it's hard to really fathom, and it's totally been lost in history. Our only cultural versions of the Vietnam War mostly are about how it made the guys who did it, the, the men who carried out a fucking butchery in Southeast Asia, it made them feel sad. If you only watched American Vietnam War movies, you'd think that these guys were defending their their frontier against rampaging invaders instead of being in another country and just wantonly committing massacres, killing million, literally millions of people. And, and throughout the whole time that these guys were protesting peacefully, the war just kept expanding. Johnson kept adding more bombings, kept adding more troops. And then Nixon ran on a promise to end the war. He had a secret fucking plan to end the war. And what happened? He got in there and he expanded the war, a secret bombing in Cambodia. And then when people started getting pissed, students were massacred in Kent State and Jackson State. There was no real feeling that, that you could change anything without the only language that this sort of monstrous power understood, which was violence. So that's the milieu. And, Amer- and America's racial horror show. Uh, segregation was over as a matter of law, but its its effects lingered with no real effort to try to correct them and just and 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 awfulness. And every time somebody tried to stand up for them, like like Fred Hampton, they were literally murdered, or Martin Luther King murdered. And just the sense that that nothing was getting better on any front. That we'd reached this, we'd hit the absolute limit, and reaction was coming into our faces and just destroying our ability to to create anything better that we were only going to go backward from now on. That frustration is understandable. And so these people channeled it into this violence. Um, the most famous of them were uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who emerged sort of out of general amnesty in the early 80s to say, hey, we're no longer under, uh, we're no longer underground. We're no longer doing violence. It didn't work. We did all these bombings. They didn't really change anything. Uh, we're pretty tired. We'd like to go back to the bourgeois, you know, professional lives that we had to coming to us when we were in college before we decided to do this. And they got away and then they eventually became or they got off and they eventually settled into cushy uh, academic jobs and were neighbors of Barack Obama and Felix Biederman, for that matter, in Chicago, uh, which ended up being a hilarious little fill up to the 2008 campaign. Uh, Obama was accused of palling around with terrorists. And you know what? It didn't really have any effect for largely because the reason that by that point, 60s radicals were sort of cute. They were adorable. I mean, they were they were recognizably different from the sort of other represented by Islamic terrorism after 9-11. They were kind of cute. They were, they were like tie-dyed, you know? It's like It's like... Oh, look at these little guys. So it didn't have any effect. But anyway, the reason these people, even though they were responsible for numerous bombings and had done tons of illegal stuff, most of them got off with very light sentences, mostly probation, uh, maybe a fine, when they came out of underground hiding in the late 70s, early, early 80s. And the main reason for that is that this case that the feds would have been able to present to a jury, most of the evidence they would have presented would have exposed the fact that during this period, they were doing warrantless wiretaps and home invasions on people 
We're sending in Asians provocateur to provoke violence and crime in order to discredit movements. We're opening mail illegally. We're doing a whole host of radically unconstitutional acts to interdict the emerging anti-radical or the emerging radical movement. And this all really blew up when the COINTELPRO papers were found by some heroes who raided a regional FBI office and found these documents, which proved that the FBI was doing all of this. And so to have them go to court and charge these weather people, if they were going to present evidence, that evidence would have been tainted with these methods, these unconstitutional methods, which would have only opened the, these agencies up for more scrutiny and perhaps even prosecution. So these guys, for the most part, got off lightly because they were being pursued illegally, which is sort of the secret thread that runs through the decay of the new left. I mean, we can talk about and we will talk about how the new left was sort of flawed in a way that was going to undermine its effectiveness no matter what. But it sure as hell didn't help that you had every organization infiltrated with informants and agent provocateur, all of them with the mission of undermining these organizations' ability to function, the, the effect that people were unable to trust one another at any level, and groups just split and split and split. And that was all at the behest of these government agencies that were that were undermining these legitimate political movements in the United States. So the ones who didn't give up in the early 70s, in the late 70s, the dead enders, there was a group who decided, no, we're not going to come back up because the split, the, the split between people who gave themselves up and those who stayed was basically on the question of, well, maybe we should come up and try to form an actual political party. We haven't been able to... to radicalize people at the grassroots. We haven't been able to to generate the sort of energy we thought we could through spectacular violence. Maybe we need to go back to old-fashioned party building. And of course, hey, if we get to no longer be on the run and live in bands and always be hiding out for the cops and we get to relax a little bit uh, and strike a deal with the government so that we don't go to jail, hey, that's good too, right? And some of them said, fuck you, we're not going to do that. They stayed out there and in fact, in 19... Uh, in the 1980s, there was a fucking Brinks robbery in Massachusetts where a bunch of what these this group of weathermen and these uh, members of the Black Liberation Front, which was sort of an uh, Afro-communist party group, that got together to rob a Brinks truck. And then there was a massive shootout afterward that killed three people, including a cop. And that was basically the most violent episode connected to the, any of these groups, basically. The most violent single part, single moment. Uh, and those guys, those guys got to, went to jail, obviously, because they were able to connect them to this actual crime as opposed to convicting for, for these basically political crimes that would have been stitched up from uh, informant testimony and, and the results of uh, provocations. In fact, the, the, the most interesting trial to come out of this whole shenanigan is, is that Mark Felt, a F- high-level FBI uh, officer, was charged criminally in the late 70s for authorizing illegal wiretaps and home invasions. Uh, and Richard Nixon's first public appearance after Watergate was to testify on his behalf to say that presidents going back to uh, Roosevelt were authorizing all this stuff, or Kennedy were authorizing all this stuff, and it was basically privilege of office, and you shouldn't prosecute someone for carrying out an order. And Felt, Felt was convicted. He ended up having a... Uh, conviction commute, uh, pardoned by Reagan. But the irony, of course, is that Mark Felt, according to recent revelations from Woodward and Bernstein and his family, was fucking deep throat. He was the guy who, who basically helped destroy the, the Nixon presidency and Nixon fucking ended up unbeknowingly testifying for him. That's like, that is actually ironic. That is the literal irony. I mean, I can't think of anything more perfectly ironic. Anyway, so that is the anticlimactic story of the Weather Underground. We have to judge them by their works, and in that, in so doing, there is nothing to be said but that they were a colossal failure. At no point did they ever create the sort of generalized protest movement, resistance movement that they dreamed they could. Never happened. Their violence ended up redounding to no one's benefit. Uh, there's a lot of people who say that they totally undermined and fucked up the left 
Other people say that they provided a inspiration for some more militant urban elements. Uh, I don't honestly know. My guess is it was probably counterproductive. But, I mean, the fact is they were reacting to the reality, which was that the trajectory of the left by the late 60s was very much in doubt. There was no more momentum going forward after all of the huge breakthroughs in the middle of the decade. It was petering out. Reaction was coming back full force. So in that respect, you understand their desire to do that. But they didn't succeed. And we can evaluate their motives in two ways. One is the way that I've already said that the frustration and and real bone-deep horror at what America was perpetrating at home and abroad was too much. And that they were morally right to do what they were doing. But there is another part of it too, which is that they were essentially self-centered in that – What they really cared about was absolving themselves of responsibility for what their country was doing. And they've said this. Like if you look at the Weather Underground documentary that uh, that was done a few years ago, uh, interviews with them, is that they say this outright, which is that they say not doing anything would have made me complicit. Not doing anything would have made me as much of a criminal, as much of a perpetrator of violence as anyone in the Pentagon. I have a moral responsibility to stop this. But what that really means is that you're saying that what matters more than anything is that my personal conscience is clear, that my actions absolve me. Not that I actually affect change. That is second to the main point of absolving oneself from personal responsibility. And that's certainly... That certainly speaks to that generation's emerging self-fixation, the, the idea that, that there's some sort of special meaning imbued in, in the one's self-perception and that maintaining a high self-perception is key to advancing in the world uh, successfully or meaningfully or sat- satisfyingly. And that is less, uh, I guess, less commendable, more more greedy. But I'd say that the main, the main failing – of them, the main failure of the, of the Weather Underground and the SDS before them was that they were not connected in any way to a broader class movement. They were middle class college kids at the end of the day, and that cut them off in a critical way from any kind of broader effect. Their violence was always going to be idiosyncratic and personal. It was always going to be evaluated by other people and by their hoped-for proletarian audience as as a personalized act, something that didn't connect to them in any meaningful way because they didn't make those connections. They attempted to. There were these efforts called jailbreaks uh, where they tried to recruit members by going to high schools and, and basically telling the kids – this is a conformity factory. You're being turned into a willing servant of empire. You're turning into a slave. You need to break out of this jail. Come with us. Very alienating, had very little effect, got very few members that way. There was never, and there were other efforts too, but nothing ever coalesced into conduits to these communities they were trying to reach. Uh, black communities in the, in the inner cities and, and poor whites and workers everywhere. They never made that connection. And so their violence, their actions, no matter what they were, had no resonance beyond their individual lives. And while you might blame them for not recognizing that, for suffering from that enthusiastic, youthful student myopia that tells you that what's right in front of you is the most important thing in the world and the only thing that matters and I'm going to move towards this this goal with all of the passion and blood in my body, which is understandable, but it means you miss the bigger picture. So I don't know if we can blame them for that, but we certainly have to acknowledge that it was a failure to not recognize it. And what they were failing to recognize is the fundamental challenge of the left in the post-war era. All right, so I actually made this point in an episode of Chapo uh, from very nearly beginning of the of the show. Uh, some of you might not have heard of it; others you might have forgotten about it. But either way, I really feel like I want to expand on this idea a little more. And it's that if we're going to look at America through a lens of class, which we have to do if we want to evaluate its its reception, its receptiveness to change, because. Class is the motor of history. I mean, I'm sorry. You can disagree, but that's fine. I'm. That's what Marx said. It's been, I think, confirmed. I, I think it, it's unarguable is that that is the, 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 the magma. That, that's the magma that moves the tectonic plates as class. If you think that, 
and you think that evaluating a social structure for its amenability to change depends on analyzing its class structure, then the most fruitful comparison of the post-war American quote-unquote working class is to, if we look back to the Marxist categories that Marx created in his life, which were all of times well before the advanced capitalism and industrialism and post-industrialism of the United States came into being, the categories he was familiar with, the one that American people post-war most resemble is none of the ones in his understanding when he, when he breaks down uh, uh, what a working class is. None of the urban working classes that he talks about as the people who are going to overthrow capitalism. None of them. It is a reactionary class that he talks about in his book, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, the French peasantry, the French small-holding peasantry. I feel like of the categories that Marx was able to observe and sketch, post-war Americans most resemble the French peasantry of the 1840s. And that is for the reason of the way that class comes into consciousness. So this is the quote that is often referenced by people who want to make some argument that Marx hated farmers or some shit when the context of it is is that he's not criticizing farmers by calling them this. He's merely using a comparison to show the, the way that class operates in their lives. But anyway, this is a famous quote from the 18th Premier describing the peasants. The peasants who had voted in the presidential election to elect Louis Napoleon, Napoleon's dipshit fail uh, nephew uh, as president. And Marx, breaking down all the classes who were on the different sides of the French political scene after the uh, the February Revolution of 1848, he's, the, the question is left, well, why did all these peasants, these workers really, these people who depended on the market and who had foes with it and who were exploited, how did they ratify this this bourgeois reactionary. This is his way of explaining it. The smallholding peasants form an immense mass whose members live in similar conditions but without entering into manifold relations with each other. Their mode of production isolates them from one another instead of bringing them into mutual intercourse. The isolation is furthered by France's poor means of communication and the poverty of the peasants. Their field of production, the smallholding, permits no division of labor in its cultivation, no application of science, and therefore no multifariousness of development, no diversity of talent, no wealth of social relationships. Each individual peasant family is almost self-sufficient, directly produces most of its consumer needs, and thus acquires its means of life more through an exchange with nature than an intercourse with society. A smallholding, the peasant and his family, beside it another smallholding, another peasant, and another family. A few score of these can t- constitute a village, and a few score villages constitute a department. Thus, the great mass of the French nation is formed by the simple addition of anonymous magnitudes, much as potatoes in a sack form a sack of potatoes. So what Marx is saying there should be pretty clear. He's saying that the way that class consciousness emerges is not by people reading. It's not by people spontaneously coming to the understanding that socialism is the future. It's by experience. They labor. They are exploited. They suffer. They are discontent by this. They are alienated from themselves and their labor by this. And this experience creates consciousness because it is shared by thousands of other people in your immediate vicinity, hundreds to thousands, people who are suffering the same indignities, the same alienation, and thus are able to confirm with one another the same diagnosis and come together to say, we want to change this. We understand that our enemies are the people making us do this. Our enemies are the people forcing us to do this. Our enemies are the one extracting profit from our labor while doing nothing themselves. And they work together, but they also live together. They're in these tightly packed working class suburbs in Paris and and in in inner cities and other European capitals. So they wake up together. They go work together. They come back to the neighborhoods. They drink together. They can care experiences. And that experience makes them all realize to some point, at some point, what the fuck? What are these motherfuckers doing at us? It's the point where Marx says in another writing that, 
a class goes from being uh, a class in itself to a class for itself. A class that just isn't a, cons- a constituated group, but a constituated group that is self-aware, that understands its predicament and has rightly identified its enemies, its fucking boss. The one guy who pulls the fucking whistle at the beginning of the day, marches everybody into the factory, marches them out at the end of the night, and collects all the money from all the labor. That's the enemy. That's what working in those conditions does. Peasants didn't have that experience. Peasants work on their land. For the most part, they only work with their immediate family. Uh, 19th century concepts would never have imagined that like making your kid or your wife do work on your farm constitutes exploitation. It's part of the family unit or whatever. So class relations don't exist. Class conflict doesn't exist. Their neighbors are not in view. They don't see them every day. They don't interact with them. They don't bond over shared experiences the same way. They live isolated lives. Something that Marx called the rural, the rural idiocy of life in a farm. And they don't have a antagonist. Their antagonist and also their sort of lover is, the, is nature. The nature can destroy them. Nature can raise them up. And that's the, really the fight to sort of get nature on their side uh, that, that dominates their, their intellectual concept of antagonism. It, it, it's nature. They, they take the goods to market, but the price is set uh, elsewhere. It's, it's mystified. Their experience with the soil and the, and the sun and the rain, that's real. And that is, that is, their, that is their world. And that means that they're not going to grow con- class consciousness. They don't have horizontal social relationships. They only have family relationships. Their understanding of the world around them is not, is not created by interaction with people within their vicinity. It's, it's hierarchical vertical relationships with the church and the state in the form of almost legendary folk wisdom and stuff and nothing that came from neighbors specifically. Like you're not thinking of people. You're thinking of, of, a, of, a, of a concept of a state and more importantly of a church, certainly during the feudal period, less so during the modern one, but still strong in the countryside in the sense that your relationship is with God. Your relationship with is a state in the form of the king or, or, or the archbishop or someone who, who stands in for God. It's all up. It's all looking up. None of it's looking to the side. It's all looking up. Those are your social relationships. And so when it was time to vote for a president after the 48 revolution drove off the July monarchy, the answers to these political questions can't be found from experience, can't be found from intercourse, as Marx would call it, with fellow uh, members of your class. It could only come from folk memory. The last moment for these people, these people in the in the mid 1800s, these older people, uh, the last time that they could remember France being in its apogee of being great was during Napoleon's reign. Uh, and even those who were too young to experience it certainly heard the tales of, of French glory. So when someone is on the ballot with that name, that magical name, Napoleon, how else are you going to make your decision? Why wouldn't you choose to make France great again with this mystical name, this name that that connects to something. It's the only name on this ballot that connects to something. Everything else is abstract. It's just, it's, they're just words on a page that have no experience, that have no connection to your life. This has a connection to the life of you, or if you remember Napoleon, or your father, if you remember Napoleon, of your neighbors when you speak of Napoleon, when you do speak, and your family, and then you, you have a picture of him or something. That means something. And so they voted for uh, Napoleon. The name that made something that meant something to them because they didn't have another way of understanding politics. Now, obviously, post-war American subject is not in any way the same in the same situation. Our connection to the land was severed generations ago. Our contact with agriculture is totally through the barriers of of currency and processing and capitalism. There is no connection to anything you could even remotely call natural for most of us. It is a simulated, abstracted world. But we are isolated and moved away from horizontal interaction in the same way that those French peasants were. After World War II, after the largesse generated by being the hyperpower with the only manufacturing capability that was intact after World War II – uh, when that munificence would spread across this burgeoning middle middle white white middle class, 
Americas were basically dispersed to the winds in suburbs. So suburbanization cast people from these tightly knit workers' neighborhoods, these urban workers' neighborhoods, because that is such a key to class consciousness as Marx understood it. it and, and the thing is, is that this was something that he basically anticipated because a lot of the class categories that Marx talked about in 1848 had not yet really come into view in Europe. And a lot of the, the, the Industrial Revolution was highly advanced in some parts of Europe, like the UK, but not in others. And it was not evenly sparsed out. So he was anticipating this. But by the end of that century, the end of the 19th century, after he had died, you really saw that the reality of having mass industrial production was the people came together into these communities. Um, the suburbs in Paris that are now these seething immigrant belts were called uh, at this period the Red Belt. It was it was just this belt of neighborhoods that all voted communist uh, and, and were were not to be persuaded on the political question. Who understood things? You had and that was just par for the course in Europe. These these tightly compacted red neighborhoods, but those were broken up by housing policy after World War II. People were scattered to the winds of these suburbs with the quarter-acre lot and the separation from one another. And you were either broken up geographically or you were isolated geographically by racism, by this maniacal need to quarantine black people, many of whom were, most of whom were workers, from everyone else. So so uh, barriers were, were thrown up racially, and and, uh, and geographically across the country. So that was the beginning of it. After World War II, it was this spreading out, this geographic separation that separated everybody from each other. And then the other thing that came in that Marx obviously could never have anticipated was mass media, because just as these tendrils of suburbia are being thrown out from every major city, just as walls are going up to ensure that, that black and minority workers are, are, are ghettoized, also all those homes are being filled with televisions and the culture the television creates, which obliterates the need, the old animal spiritual need to just be out and amongst other people, to be out amongst people who you are not seeing every day, people who who give your life variety and change. Well, well, you don't need that anymore. There's a fucking box in your living room that will give that to you and will present you with a unified ideological framework. Like all art will comport to this narrow spectrum of capitalist ideology. And so those two forces, media and geography, start the process by which people, this 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 unified working class or or white working class, because because that was part of the, the grim deal of American racial hierarchy, started to break up. And then it was exacerbated in the coming years by the fact that even the working conditions that Marx talked about where hundreds of people were in a factory together, those were broken up. Factories were cast off uh, into smaller areas so that they were less, less important to the supply chain, but in reality, less vulnerable to a mass shutdown. So first they were scattered into the winds, these factories, into areas with less robust labor laws, for example, in the South. And then when liberalization happened in the 70s, across into lower uh, union density and lower uh, standard of living countries. And so those workplaces, the old shop floors, you know, the, the fucking shop floors where the Petersburg Soviet was born, they were gone. And in their place was a patchwork of retail and service industry and smaller workplaces with fewer employees interacting with each other at a given time, more turnover, so less time to make connections with people. So those forces over the years have created a situation where those horizontal social relationships, which built class consciousness in the old working class urban neighborhoods, was broken up and replaced with the old French peasant vertical relationship. Because you're once again with your family, broken away, inwardly focused. I'm sure that some of those French peasants, their small hold wasn't much bigger than the acreage of a nice suburban home in, a, in, in you know, Long Island or something, in Levittown. So you're back to that. 
you're back to that geographic separation from your fellow. I mean, you don't work there, but you you work somewhere else where you only interact with people. And then you're back and you're never seeing them again. You're not walking back to the same neighborhood the way you were with the people you worked with in the factories in the years before. So now you're broken up in that same way. And once again, your only way to even imagine that you're living in a community or in a country with a shared value system and history and, and, and vocabulary is through media, television, movies, the internet. This is how you know that you're in America. This is how you know that America is anything. This is how you have a vocabulary to talk about America is by that, by that vertical relationship to mediated concepts and media figures. It can't be stressed enough the degree to which politics and culture in America are personalized. Because we don't have concepts to talk about things because we don't have shared experiences that can lead us to conclusions. We only have things brought from above, sort of dropped on our heads. And they come in these forms born by these recurring visages, these brands, and these people. And so we relate to them as these givers, essentially a cultural cargo cult. And so these are the people who tell us things. And so we relate to politics on a purely personal level. I mean, much has been made about how there's no ideological consistency between the people who hated Obama and loved Trump, the people who hated this, this gay Muslim but loved this, this fancy, flighty, queeny New York real estate kibitzer and decide that he's an alpha male. I mean, how does that happen? It happens because... Uh, None of these categories mean anything other than our ability to impress upon symbols that are embodied by people. Like that's why the the, – that's why the left reform movement in America is honestly in trouble once fucking Bernie Sanders dies because, yes, he would – when Bernie showed up in the uh, 16 election, he was showing up at a time when people were ready to hear a socialist message. But they needed someone to – put those feelings into. And Bernie was the vessel. He was this old slovenly guy, direct, blunt to the point. It wasn't just that he was saying the things that people could relate to. It's that he presented himself in a way that felt authentic. And even if there were 15 senators and 100 congresspeople who had Bernie's exact record and beliefs, if they didn't have his presentation of authenticity, they would be less appealing to voters and to Americans. And so anybody that comes after Bernie, unless he's a fucking clone, is going to have that same – he's going to have less authenticity and so he's going to be less appealing to voters because people can only relate – at that symbolic level, they have no other language to talk about politics or understand it. And of course, this is why in 2016, enough Americans were able to look at the grasping, bloated, horrific, monstrous visage of Donald Trump and, Trump and be like, you know what? Fuck it. Go for it. Because that's what only understanding the world through these celebrity avatars will lead you to. A guy shows up, you see him on a, your entire life on television as this figure of, of massive success and, and, and awesomeness and, and total fucking ownage. This guy who cuts his way through life without giving a shit, gets whatever he wants, busses everybody around. How would you not see him and say, yes, this is the man to lead us out of these doldrums? Because what else do you have? It's the way that the French peasants looked at Louis Napoleon and thought of the fucking empire. You look at Trump or these people looked at Trump and they saw a life that was like what they saw on TV. So that is why I say that, well, the French peasants of the mid 1800s that Marx talked about were potatoes in a sack. These natural things pulled from the earth and still covered with loam thrown into a bag. We are similar but different in the sense that we are the potatoes pulled from the earth, but then peeled, diced, processed, adulterated, reconfigured, fried, stacked mechanically, placed into the same isolation 
from each other, but in a rigidly mechanical form, the way that we come into the world fundamentally incapable of relating to nature the way that these French peasants did, changed deeply by our relationship to technology and media. So we are not potatoes in a sack. We are instead Pringles in a tube. And the SDS was always fighting against this current, always trying to re-knit these connections that have been severed. They were never able to do it. And part of that is because they were a bunch of dipshit middle-class college kids. But the other part of it is because those severing of ties is the most salient issue that exists on the American left. It is the signal challenge of those who seek to build some sort of consensus around change, around overcoming the savage limitations of capitalism, saving the earth and saving humanity. This question of breaking up those chips into something different is the one that should be all in the front of all of our minds whenever we think of how the hell we're going to get out of this. All right. Well, that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed yourself. I had a good time. I'll talk to you dudes on the flippity flop. Yeah.